Well, tonight we get the opportunity to continue on in a conversation about biblical counseling. At last we met, I spoke about uh, a description of the process of change from the perspective of the counselor. And I gave you seven essentials of the biblical counselor uh, to be an instrument in the hands of the Redeemer. As it, as it would affect counseling. And what I wanted to do this week was come back and, and offer something from the perspective of the counselee and talk about what does the counselee need to do to change? Uh, it it's, might well be the case that before many of you would perceive yourselves or engage in the act of biblical counseling, which you do a lot of, but you might not think that way, you would probably see yourself much more in the seat of the counselee. And so I want to really use this night to equip you uh, to give you some tools and some thought processes to really put off sin and to put on the righteousness of Christ. So that's what we're going to look at. I'm going to open up and I'm going to share a story with you from this book here that I had a chance to, to read. It's called Psychobabble. Psychobabble. And it's written by Richard Gans. And this book by Richard Gans, Richard Gans is a New York City Jew. He's a former psychotherapist that worked at a uh, mental institution in Ontario, I believe, in Canada, up in Canada. And uh, the the pages go on to say here in the early going that he was um, ministering to one of the people on his ward. And the man received Christ. The man came to him and, and received Christ. And he goes into his boss's office the next day and the boss says, hey, I've got something really funny to share with you because they always shared funny stories about the patients. And he says, oh, yeah, what's that? Let's, let's go ahead and hear it. And he goes, there's this guy here on the ward that's going around saying that Jesus Christ is Lord and King of Kings. And, and then he said that you told him that. Is that true? And Gans says, yes, it is. And he said, well, you can either cease that practice or you can leave. And just being relatively new there, he wanted to stay on and keep his job, but... He said, let me go home and pray about it. And he did. He went home and prayed about it. And he came back and he said, I can't do that. He said, I'm going to tell people about Jesus Christ. I do believe that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And his boss said, you have 30 days. I want to read this passage to you from the book. But I had 30 days notice. And during my final 30 days at the medical center, a middle-aged Orthodox Jew came to my attention on the ward. He spent most of his time in a fetal position, doing nothing. I went over to him and commanded him to get up in the name of Jesus Christ. He stood up, enraged, informed me that he was a Jew. I explained that everything he longed and hoped for as an individual and as a Jew could be found in the Messiah, Jesus. He rushed from the room, assuring me that he would prove me wrong. He went and got a Bible, and we began to meet to discuss what the Old Testament had to say about Jesus. I never saw him again in a fetal position. Rather, he was bent over his Bible, intent on proving that I was wrong about Jesus. And one day I took him to lunch. And to my amazement, he said, I want to become a Christian now. His studies had brought him to Christ. Over a hamburger and fries, I led him to a place of mercy and living waters from which he eagerly drank. You know, either this is the power that we're playing with, the eternal power, the spiritual power to take a dead man and make him alive a man in a fetal position, and cause him to labor over the scriptures, or it's not, or it's a joke, or it's all the best that psychology has to offer, psychotherapy and these things. And that's just not what the Bible says, and that's not what God would have us stand for. And that's what we're supposed to do as Christians, is to stand for the power of the word of God, to affect change that is supernatural to us, to comprehend and understand. 
Because who's ultimately behind the supernatural activity? The God that we serve himself and the person of the Holy Spirit. I wanted to, to bring this to your attention because in that story that Richard Gans tells, uh, there's a great evangelistic story. It kind of prods that, that uh, spur into us, go evangelize. But it also talks about the contrast between the man that was and the man that is. The man that was and the man that is. Grab your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 4. And I would ask you this question while you do that. When is a door not a door? When is a door not a door? Excellent. We have the answer right down in front here. When the door is a jar, it's not a door. And that is the correct answer. The, the door is not, it's not a door anymore. A prize right here. Can I get, can you get a prize? Okay, how about this one? Is a thief not a thief when he's not stealing? You guys have notes. I need to have I need to have you have notes. <laughs> Can you pass those down behind you this way? Can you pass those up that way? Thanks. Is a thief, the question is, is a thief not a thief when he's not stealing? Is a liar not a liar because he stopped lying? The answer to the question is no. No. And the reason is because in the fabric of his being... He's still a thief or he's still a liar. The simply stopping of an activity does not change him at all. It doesn't change him at all. In fact, many thieves cease their practice for a while, or, or liars for that matter, because it's to their benefit to cease the practice until they have opportunity to do it again. You see, I want you to remember this. Cessation is no indication of change. Cessation is no indication of change. You can stop that habit or behavior for a little while, but chances are, because that's woven into the fabric of who you are, it'll resurface itself. It'll come right back to the top. In biblical counseling, we're not simply looking for behavior change or modification of behavior like B.F. Skinner and those who would follow his understanding of counseling. I want to read Ephesians chapter, seven, uh, chapter 4, verses 17 through 24 with you. Let's take a look at that. Because we want to see a new man. That's what we're after. Ephesians 4, 17 through 24. We want to see a new man. That's what we're after, a new man and a new creation. Go ahead and read with me. It says this. Paul says this to the Ephesians. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as the truth is in Christ, in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God and has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. This is what we're after. You know, these verses, these are the bread and butter text of biblical counseling. The putting off, the renewing of the mind, and the putting on of Christ-likeness, of, of the righteousness of God. 
This passage is also then the bread and butter for the counselee. If change is to be had, it's going to look like this because this is the scripture and this is what it tells us we need to do. It's a two-part process, biblical change. It's a two-part process. This passage has the perfect scenario for change. The wickedness of the person, the sinfulness is understood and this passage then also knows about the hope that comes in Jesus Christ alone, him alone. You know, better yet, this passage also makes very clear to you and to me that it has demands of our lives. We've called these in, in the past expectations of behavior, expectations of behavior. We've talked about it being right that a holy God would have expectations of your behavior, that he knows what he wants to get from you, and that he'll even craft scenarios around your life to put you in the right place to squeeze out of you what's in you so that you can see what's in you. And if there's a lick of glory for him that he's going to get from you because you model his behavior, then he's well pleased in that. And he'll put you in the scenario to make it happen. This passage says that biblical change is a twofold process. You know, the answer here to the thief and the answer here to the liar is in that text. While your eyes are there, let's take a look at that. Look at verse 25, the next verse. It says this, therefore laying aside falsehood, right? Laying aside falsehood, stopping lying. It says this in verse 25, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor. So what's the answer? Oh, yeah, put off lying. If you're a liar, put off lying. Cease lying and embrace speaking the truth, speaking the truth to others. Look down there at verse uh, 28. He who steals must steal no longer. Cease your stealing. Discontinue. Be done with your stealing. And it goes on to say, but rather, this man, the one who, would, who was a former thief, he must labor, performing his own, with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with the, with the one who has need. Now, that's quite a change, right? So this, what's the idea with a, when a door is not a door? When it's something different, when it's something else. And that's the nature of this thief right here, isn't it? He, he was a thief but he discontinues being a thief so that he can work with his hands. And in working with his hands, he can generate enough to sustain himself. But in generating revenue to sustain himself, he generates more than enough, and then he begins giving it to other people. That's the power of God in transformation. That's the work that we're after in sanctification. And that's why biblical counselors exist, to be able to point other Christians in the right direction. Again, who are the biblical counselors in the room? Come on, raise your hand. You know you. <laughs> it's all of us. We're all biblical counselors. We need to cease and embrace. We need to toss out and to bring in. We need to put off, as the text says, and to put on. This is how we handle ungodly habits. We've got to pop them off. We must dehabituate and then rehabituate. We must stop doing the bad and then actively do what is good. It's a twofold process. It's not enough to just think of the one. We talked about that last week. What happens if you just discontinue the one bad process? If you just discontinue this bad thing? What are you going to do? You're going to turn to the next bad thing. You know, the person that was heavy and overweight, they turn to fitness and then they make their body their God. And then they become wealthy or rich from their fitness activities and they want to show that to everybody so they start making money and they make money their God and they just keep spinning around 
from one sin activity to the next. And where do we say that they need to turn to? Because it's not just a turning from. Metanoia, repentance, it's not just turning from the bad activity. It's not that. What is it? It's turning from the bad activity to. You have to have an object, a place to go. There's got to be a destination. That's what we're going to get to with our our counselee tonight in our case study. Looking forward to sharing that case study with you guys. This stop doing principle and actively start doing, it's all over the New Testament. You see it in 1 Peter 3, 9, 3 John, verse 11. And then in Matthew 16, how could you miss this one? 16, 24, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. Before we press past this, I I know that you know the put-off, put-on concept. Many have been around Christianity for a long time. I I know that you've probably heard that passage and and read through it, studied it. What happens if we fail to change, though, right? What happens if we, as believers, what happens to our heart if we don't put off sin? And if we don't put on Christ? I heard hardness. Keep coming. Anger. You know why? Why? Why would that be the case? Why would these things settle on us? Hardness, anger, your conscience, right, it's kicking you because you are a what? You're rebellious, yeah? Sinner, yeah? You're a hypocrite. You you want something, but you're not getting it. You're trying to, to make your own self the king, and you're not getting it. You want God to be shaped and fashioned the way that you want him. Conform to me. I will worship if you look the way that I want you to. And so you become a hypocrite. And I've got to tell you, you see it too many times, the hypocrite is crushed in their heart, crushed in their spirit. The weight of the condemnation begins to mount because they know that there's an internal heart change, but they're, they're not choosing to actively do the hard work of change, which is the work that God wants them to do. To fail to put off and put on leads to eyes that can't see Romans 8.1. Eyes that can't see it. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're a hypocrite, you're going to have a hard time seeing that verse and taking it for what it actually is for you. The relief that comes from that verse, they won't see it. There's failure in in crushing because the hearts know that it must not grieve the Holy Spirit, but it grieves the Holy Spirit anyway. The heart knows that it is the temple of the living God, but it burdens that heart anyway. This can lead to great anxiety do you see this? It can lead to anxiety. It can lead to, what's the next one? Depression, right? It can lead to depression. It can lead to worry, fear. You know what it also leads to often? It leads to continued rebellion against God. This hardening, this callousing, this failure to change. These things can have psychosomatic responses. Psychosomatic, mind-body. Psychosomatic, mind-body. Mind-body responses. Where the mind thinks something and then the body reacts where your thoughts produce physical realities. You, you know you can make yourself sick, right? I and mean, if you think long and hard about it and start meditating on it, you, you, your body will, you can put your body through tremors, through cold sweats, you can throw up, you can get sick or even worse. Your mind can do that. Contrary to that, or, or, or the converse of that is that your body can cause your mind to go depressed or to go anxious or to have worry because of its own symptoms or the, the physical ailments that might come upon you. These are called psychosomatic responses. But believers must be on the narrow path. And the narrow path is occupied with busy people, people who are continually trying to do what? Two things. Put off the old man and put on the new man. That's the road and the path of a believer. What's that process we call? What's the big $10 word? 
sanctification, sanctification, that's what we're after. We want to have people sanctified. On your sheet there, I've given you the maturity humility pyramid. I want this to be a real practical tool for you. I want you to be able to take this tool and put it to use in, in your life and in your heart, and hopefully I'll, I'll be able to explain it here. And I want to present it now before the case study because as we go through this case study tonight, I want you to see how this person interacts with life, how she, how she fails, and the things that she says. And relate them back to this pyramid. Think about this in terms of are we really headed down a road toward Christ-likeness? The maturity humility pyramid, you've got it on your sheet there in front of you. At level one, you you must have the initial humility to acknowledge this. Answers are outside of me and inside of Scripture. This is the basic humility of faith itself. Faith itself just is able to produce in you this answer. I don't have the answers. The answers are outside of me. That's level one, the bottom level. You've got to go in through that gate. Then we're going to take the next step up, and it's this one. At level two, you are willing to hold the word of God up to your life and to look into the mirror of the word of God and to begin to examine your life and your faults. Level two says that you have a desire then to examine self in the mirror of God's word. That's what level two says, that you have a desire to examine yourself in the mirror of God's word. At level three, God gives you eyes then. God gives you eyes to see both the reasoning and the practice the reasoning and the practice that has led to ungodly habits. The reasoning and the practice. And with this recognition, you can move forward to putting off the sinful behavior and putting on Christ. However, I would caution you, and be mindful of this, without being given these eyes to see your sin as you look at the mirror, if you're not given the eyes to see the habits and patterns that need to be popped right off of your life, You've got to go back and repeat levels one and two. You've got to go back and, and examine yourself again. And you've got to go back and ask yourself the question, how much do I really believe that this is the word of God, the word of the living God that matters to me today? So you've got to go back and evaluate one and two and make sure that you're really set and, and that really has settled itself well in your heart and in your soul. God wants to give you eyes, but not just for your good alone. He's got bigger plans than just your good. Because your good must be by process or by way of his glory. It's his glory first. He wants you to to desire to continue all the way to the top of the pyramid because he wants you to become like his son. And so level three is recognize unchristlike habits. Well, then you go to level four. You've recognized unchristlike habits. And at level four, with eyes to see and a solid desire for scripture, the Lord has equipped you to dump your bad habits. He's equipped you to dump your bad habits. And level four then is where believers do the first part in dumping bad habits. We talked about that before. It's the putting off of the sinfulness. The putting off of the sinfulness. Actively ceasing to sin. Another way to say that would be unpracticing evil practices. Unpracticing. At level five then, we finally reach a peak. The peak of maturity. The height of humility is seen in level five, when the believer overwhelmingly desires to put on Christ-likeness to the glory of God and for their own good. Level five is where believers put on Christ. Put on Christ. This is well-pleasing to God. It's satisfying to God the Father, to to the Son, to the indwelling Holy Spirit, to you as a believer. It's satisfying to you. It comes with great confirmation of your faith, doesn't it? 
Doesn't it? When you put on Christ-likeness, doesn't that help to confirm your faith? Well, you bet it does, and the scriptures tell us that. It gives you fullness of joy as well, fullness of joy. And it gives you a renewed strength because you want to try that again with the next change that might be harder. At least you've got momentum, and you see the Lord wants these to happen. This process blesses the church. It blesses other believers, and for that matter, it blesses the whole world. Nothing is higher or more worthy of our time and effort than to put on Christ-likeness. But to do that, all the levels of the pyramid must be achieved. It begins with humility. Humility. That response of faith that says, the answers are outside of me. The answers are in Scripture. The answers belong to God alone. And this is only found in true Christians, in true believers. I want to move into the case study now. And I want to start talking about a pastor, Robert Jones, who in his ministry, when it began, he was only 26 years old. And it's the great desire of the theologians that he studied around and and many of the ones that I spent time with that a 26-year-old pastor get a really challenging case early on in his ministry. And that's exactly what Bob Jones got in this one. So I want you to meet his counselees. They're Nate and Julie. Nate and Julie. They're both college educated. They're in their 30s. They've been married for eight years and have two kids. And recently, a job transfer brought them from family and from friends to Bob's church in his, in his city, in his area. And from all aspects, uh, at least for their confession, these are committed Christians. These are committed Christians who have suffered, um, they've suffered church splits. The church splits have made them cautious about their uh, interest and involvement in the church, but they're there nonetheless. But it also has meant that they've spent time in legalistic land and theologically shallow bill. They've, they've been to these places. And consider what Bob has to say in the conclusion of this case. I want you to take you all the way to the end and give you this now to kind of primer where we're going. He says this. People entangled in severe sins tend to isolate themselves for a variety of reasons. They are in love with their sin, ashamed of their sin, too proud to let others know, too self-sufficient to let others in. They lack a true desire to change. They believe they can beat their problem on their own, and they don't want to inconvenience their friends with their long-term problems that defy simple solutions. Well, Julie, in our story, she's marked by many of these tendencies. And further, Bob and his team, they said this, most counseling, most counseling problems reflect a distorted view of God and a deficient relationship with Christ. I'm going to say that again to you. That's important. Most counseling problems reflect a distorted view of God and a deficient relationship with Christ. He says distorted view. I say bad theology. So you can go either way. You can have your DVs or your BTs, but it's the same thing. And guess what? I'm sitting in an audience with people that are full of DVs and BTs. You know why? Because I've got, I got some too. And, and it's not necessarily in my understanding of theology, having coming from the Master Seminary. Not that I'm going to say that's perfect. <laughs> I wouldn't say that. But I'm going to say in my actual practice, in my own life, it's funny how short I fall on the DVs and the BTs. It's funny how often I'll act like an atheist. I'll practice that the, the, the same things that an atheist will practice on my own. So we all have DVs and BTs. 
These are helpful insights for this case because we're not given the time to cover all the details. The span of this case for this poor young pastor at age 26, 1.5 years. Year and a half case. With that much time on the rebellion clock, we've got many plot twists and turns. So I'm going to need to break this thing up into surprises. So we're going to break it up into the four surprises that come. And before we get into the first surprise, I need to give you more context so you can understand more about Nate and Julie. After being in church for a while, and they had attended a few different events and activities where Bob was able to meet them and and spend some time with them, they came in for counseling. And this was in October, so just a few months back, if you want to start on on a calendar. October is when they started. A year and a half from October, they would see something in the way of resolution. But here's the story. The issues that came up at that time were these. Spiritual issues, physical issues, marital issues, and children, parenting issues. Julie has what she calls life stressors. These are life itself, anxiety, depression, control, and perfectionism. In her words, and I'm going to roll off four quotes here in a row. So this is, this is her words. These are what I want you to pay attention to. I've got a lot of her quotes in here. I just picked them out because I want you to hear from the mouth of the counselee. Because chances are this might be something that you've said or that you've heard someone else say recently. So I want you to hear her words. I'm overwhelmingly stressed out. I want to develop spiritual disciplines. I need daily time in the word. And this one, I'm afraid to be alone with God. Okay, now that's where you take your easy, uh, your your button, your easy button there, your DV button, and you hit it hard. (laughs) Distorted view. What's the distorted view with that? I'm afraid to be alone with God. You You catch these words that they're saying. Because what does scripture tell us? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Did she just let us in on her theology right there a little bit? Did you you hear a little theology in there? Did she kind of make a bit of a a truth claim about God? Is it right that believers are afraid, are afraid to be alone with God? You catch that? It's a distorted view. Even so, Bob hears these things that she says at their first meeting, and he concludes, with all this evidence, he concludes that they're both Christians. Okay, They're both Christians. Nate, a little further along in his walk and more stable, but Julie, more emotionally driven, random in her walk, and fearful, driven by people-pleasing. Julie had some physical issues as well. Before they moved out there, she was involved in a car crash. She was taking pain medications for that. Additionally, in taking top of uh, the pain medications, she had been diagnosed when she was in high school with low self-esteem, and she was given medication for that as well. I know, you're gonna hit, you want me to hit the, the distorted view button again. Oh, yeah, we will. We need to. Again, we hit that distorted view button because God has different answers than low self-esteem and pills to pop for low self-esteem. Because what does the Bible say about pride? Does it say anything about low self-esteem? Can you go and find the low self-esteem chapter in like 1 Corinthians 14 after the love chapter? <laughs> it's not there, right? No, the Bible says you're, you're too prideful. That's, that's the problem. And yet, in as much as she has distorted views, she says this. Here's another quote. I need to fear God more than my husband. That's good, huh? Listen to that again. I need to fear God more than my husband. That's accurate. That's right. You, You do need to do that. So she's got this really kind of mixed up theology, some God mixed in there. She claims Christ. She'll never let that go, but... These quotes, here's some more quotes. She was asked, um, what, what have you done about your problems? She says this, I take medications for anxiety and depression. As for everything else, I've done little or nothing. 
Regarding marriage and parenting, she says, I feel pressured to perform, and then I fail, and I just want to give up. Regarding God, she says, he is very far away. He's still there, and he loves me, but I feel overwhelmed, and I feel guilty when I don't run to him. This is a gal who has a real performance issue. Does Julie live with reasonable expectations about life? Just reasonable expectations about life. How well do, you, do her thoughts square with the words of Christ who said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Her words don't really conform to that scripture, do they? They're like two completely different entities. Her words and the words of Christ. Well, counseling began to happen in October. And I assure you that Bob and his team, they poured the best of what they had from the Bible and their lives and their time into Nate and Julie for five months, ministering, laboring, admonishing, loving, and teaching them. And then we get to surprise one. We get to February. February comes and Julie's anger toward Nate has increased. She has great desires to get out of the marriage. The parenting problems have only gotten worse, and there's two big areas of parenting problems. Number one, they're still letting the kids sleep in their bed. That's a problem. Number two, there's no discipline coming from Julie toward the kids, which kind of goes back to that whole people-pleasing thing. No discipline. And from her mouth, Julie says, Nate is just looking for ways to condemn me all the time. Well, according to the... Bob and his team, Nate's standards were very reasonable. So she really can't make that claim accurately, truthfully. So the surprise. When, when uh, Julie's been coping with her distorted views, Julie's been coping with her distorted views of how she's supposed to perform in life and all these anx- uh, anxieties that she's having about life, she's been coping. She's been finding a means to cope. What's she been doing? Take a guess. How do people cope? What's well, an easy one. There we go. Alcohol. That's her, that's her trick right there, drinking. She leans into the bottle. She starts drinking. This confession then is immediately addressed in counseling, including the boundaries that she needs for her life, access to this. Nate and her talk and the biblical counselors, they talk about these access, boundaries, control, accountability. All those things are established. And yet one week later, taking her medications and drinking alcohol, she crashes her car into somebody and then flees the scene. So Nate... And the biblical counselors, they decide, hey, you know what? The best case scenario for us right now is to really take the keys away from her. And she did not respond very well to that. She was not humbled enough to say, that's probably the next best thing for me. Well, counseling continues from February all the way through June, February to June. Several women have been and continue to be involved directly with Julie. The ministry of the church and the counselors is going well beyond the one hour per week in the counseling office. The ministering is in her home with her as they focus on homemaking and on life management. There's daily schedules that they're helping her establish, and they're setting up regular bedtimes for the kids. They're letting them know and helping them through the process that Sunday morning starts on Saturday night and just some of these simple things. They've encouraged them to discipline the kids, particularly Julie, expressing to her why this is important. And then they've encouraged them to get the kids out of the marriage bed. The results... Well, homemaking and mothering went more smoothly for her. And the end of the school year came, and it was June, and the marriage 
problems began to heat up again. Even with the success in homemaking and mothering, still conflict with with her spouse, Nate, and she says this. She says, we need a separation because they're fighting all the time about their challenges. And you think the surprise is coming, but it's not yet. The surprise is a little bit further down the road, actually. Counseling continues. There's little growth. I want you to hear this part. There's little growth from Julie because from Julie, as it relates to these things, there's minimal commitment. There's minimal commitment to the homework that's assigned in the biblical counseling office. And there's minimal commitment to the assignments which are trying to help her establish patterns and habits of thinking and behaving. And she doesn't want to do these. She's unwilling. And the unwillingness is seen at the counseling office. It's seen at the Bible study level, the home group Bible studies, which are so fundamental in a process like this. She's, she's not choosing to engage. It was a counseling of summer, and it was a miserable summer. And then the fall came, and there weren't any changes except for this. The changes that came when the fall came around were that Julie's addictions had only increased. She continued her smoking, she continued drinking, and she was continuing abusing prescription medications. Nate and, and the counseling determined that she needed to go to an inpatient facility to detoxify, just to get off the drugs, to get a clear mind again. So they, they look up a 30-day program, and they send her to a 30-day inpatient program in September. And you know what? In October, she comes out in October, and she came out drug-free. And she came out alcohol-free. Yay! You know, Should we send everybody to 30-day programs and 12-step programs? Oh, hold the phone. Hold the phone. You know, we talked about B.F. Skinner and behaviorism. You know, can, can you take and get behavior out of people that you want? Can you do that? Absolutely you can. Uh, several of us have served in the military. We, we know what that looks like. <laughs> now, there's a reason why they do what they do. So you can get the behavior out of people that you want. You know, if a, if a sheriff was in the room, he might be able to take a pair of handcuffs and put them behind my back and walk me off to jail. You can get the behavior out of someone that you want. In biblical Christianity, we're looking for more than behavior change. That's what we're, we're after more than behavior change. So then we find out surprise number two. She's off drugs and alcohol. Surprise number two. We're in October. It was an inpatient facility that was co-ed. You guessed it. Yeah, infidelity. Overcome with guilt, she decided to phone Nate and let him know of her unfaithfulness. Listening to Julie explain the reasoning in the counseling session, listen to these comments. Listen to these comments of of Julie. She said, I felt camaraderie with several patients. This guy and I just hit it off. He made me feel special and I liked it too much. I felt right at the time, but I know it wasn't right. I found someone who accepted me, who loved me for who I am. You find yourself hitting the distorted view button really hard on that last one. (laughs) Did you see that? I'll read it again. I found someone who accepts me, who loved me for who I am. Did did he love her? Distorted view, right? Are you finding yourself catching what she's saying? How much bad theology is in her mind? And it's still working its way through her understanding of Christ of the Bible, of sanctification. She goes on to say this, I'd get out of the marriage if I could, and I've wanted to for a long time, but I care for the kids. 
I don't, she says this, I know God doesn't want divorce, but I feel like I'm in a cage. I thought, I had thought, sorry, I had the thought that after rehab, I could be a better mom, but I can't. You know, I just wonder, with, with your understanding of the power of the Holy Spirit, how many times in the rest of your life do you think you should say, I can't? Does that make sense? How many times, if you really have the Holy Spirit of the living God inside of your heart, do you, can, do you feel right, comfortable using those words? I just I don't think that's right. Again, bad theology. Distorted views. Well, at this point, counseling gets very intense for a three-week period from October on into November. Counselors and the Bible study group leaders are pleading with Julie to repent, but several things have become clear over the course of the last year. And Bob says this. He makes this point at this time. He says this. It had become apparent to everyone but Julie that she had deep heart issues that needed radical attention. The core problems were not chronic pain, psychiatric medications, marriage and parenting failures, substance abuse, or even infidelity. At root, Julie remained consumed with herself as she pursued happiness on her own terms. He goes on to say that her self-willed life was so clearly seen in her rebellion And in her unbelief, it made her feel hopeless, helpless, miserable, and condemned. And you know what? This woman never recanted her faith in Jesus Christ. Never, never recanted her faith. But she also never cried out to God for his mercy and grace. Do you see the problems here? You're following along with this. You've heard these comments. I know you've heard these comments made before. Whose voice does Julie trust and listen to the most? Her own. She loves her voice. She's her own worst enemy. All the while, the truth of Christ is going full speed into one ear and right out the other one. And if she only realized that the truth that she needs to to save herself, to save her life, is being presented, but she refuses to hold on to it. And then surprise three becomes reality. It actually is no real surprise to you at all. If you think about it, we've gone down the road of addiction and we've been off to rehab and we've gone the adultery route. And what comes next? What does she want it all along? To be free, right? She wants out. So she takes off. Flight. Takes off. She picked up drinking and smoking again. She met a guy at a bar and she moved in with him. Further, she goes and contacts an attorney. She sets up a legal separation to have that started, all with the aim of, of divorce. Strangely, strangely, very strangely, surprise number five maybe, she didn't want to meet for counseling anymore. Just take that off the table. I don't want to do that. The counseling team continued, though, to reach out to her, and they continued to spend a great deal of time with Nate and the kids. And in three months' time, into January, her prodigal ways continued until finally a breakthrough. The fourth boyfriend kicked her out. The fourth boyfriend kicked her out. The counseling team then got a hold of her quickly. And they introduced her to a woman in the church who was willing to take her in under very specific and controlled rules and an environment, even to the extent of her mentoring this woman in the Lord. She said yes to these things, and and they began to meet, and she stayed with her. And you know what? Julie started to sober up spiritually and physically. And at this point, we reach surprise number four, the most important surprise of all. 
Julie grew willing to come back in for counseling. Julie grew willing to come back in for counseling. The counselors had loved and served so long and so hard investing and investing at a very personal and in-your-house level, at a Bible study, at a family home group Bible study level. The pastor at the biblical counseling level, at the teaching level, so much investing, and now the fruit was being manifested in both Nate and Julie. Do you have the patience to wait a year and a half? Do you have the patience to wait five, ten years? Nate was willing to have her come home. Think about that. They worked with Nate so much that Nate was willing to have her come home. And they sat down with him and they talked about conditions and rules for her return. Julie, at this time, agreed to all of them. A new desire had come over this woman to follow Jesus Christ. And at this point, she actually became a true counselee. She had never been earnestly seeking wisdom. But now there was an eagerness and a willingness. So what happened? You know, we move from January, we're in the winter, and then on into the spring. Well, counseling continued to happen in the same fashion as before, but only now the homework was being done. And the habits were being attacked. And new patterns were being established. She was putting off and putting on. On this list includes several big changes. We talk about the addictions that she had. Alcohol, smoking, prescription medication. She dumps them. She dumps them. What about her psych meds? Well, she stayed on them for a while only to be weaned off slowly and then done away with. The marriage conflict. The marriage conflict. Nate and Julie were being led and shepherded into bearing with one another, ministering to and being gracious with one another and forgiving one another, so much so that Julie would go on to say this. I love Nate more than when we were married. They saw the triangular shape of marriage where each person is focused on Christ and like a pendulum, they swing together if they stay focused on Christ. If he's the one that they're ultimately trying to please, they swing together. They saw this. Even their coming together, their intimacy, which was challenged by all the infidelity, became possible. Then you go to the other parenting problems, and you start looking at those, and we had two big ones. First, Julie had bad ideas about discipline, what discipline needed to look like, and therefore she didn't do it. And the counselors explained how a loving and controlled spanking was an appropriate and effective means of training her children. The second issue was quite a bit like the first one, really. Julie had bad ideas about discipline and children, and therefore she allowed the kids to sleep in their marriage bed, to sleep with mom and dad. Again, she didn't want to make them mad. This child-centered approach has damaging effects both on the children and on mom and dad because the kids start to get this inflated idea of themselves about what they deserve in life. And they miss the opportunity to really bless mom and dad, which is a healthy relationship, which is the right relationship. It diminishes the relationship that mom and dad have and that they need to enjoy. So they started working with the counselors to set up a plan to dump these habits. And all these changes led to children who were a joy rather than out-of-control children who were a problem and who were unpleasant. So what are the takeaways from our case with Nate and Julie? What are the takeaways? We talked about distorted views. Distorted views destroy lives. We talked about bad theology. Bad theology breaks marriages. You know, the other thing is, in this case, the Holy Spirit, if he's in the heart of a person, how much power?
power for change are we actually talking about? Infinite? Is that a fair word? Infinite power for change. Anything, anything can be overcome. There's no experience that any human being will have on the face of this earth that the Holy Spirit of the living God can't take care of, can't cleanse, can't wash, can't renew, can't remove the condemnation for. We also learn about counselors and that counselors must give and serve and labor long in a counseling case. And that true change will only happen. He really stressed this point in this article. True change will only happen in church-based counseling where the full gospel is presented and lived out in small groups before the counselee. He goes on to say the church is vital, is vital to counseling changes. You know, no amount of psych meds, 12-step programs, 30-day inpatient treatment facility recommendations have a chance to cure the things that were cured here. We're talking about entrenched Christian legalism, prior bad church experiences, varied and chronic medical problems, multiple substances abused issues, lack of extended family support, pressures of mothering, pressures of being a wife of a sinner, and the dishonesty of the counselee. That's eight problems, and you're going to tell me that a 12-step program will fix those things that get down into the heart? Do those 12-step programs, 30-day rehabs, do they really attack the heart? And do they give the heart the truth of the gospel in full? That's what we're after in biblical counseling. What is it that the drunk, adulterous, drug-addicted woman saw? What did she see? Where was she taken? The drug-addicted, adulterous woman was taken to the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ and introduced to him as Lord and Savior. And she was made to see how she had conflated a high view of God and a low view of self with a higher view of self and a lower view of God. How much of our society is right here where God's really not all that powerful or maybe they've actually gone to this point Trouble, right? But where do we find hope? The exaltation of God only continually, extensively, eternally. And the low esteem given to self, to man. Because Christ has to make up that difference. You know, one of the words that came up in this story about Julie and her life regularly was habits. And I've got a few minutes left on the clock, and I want to talk through this section because this is another part that, uh, of, of this lecture as far as counseling changes um, for the counselee. It's so important for you to understand. Habits. We want to talk about habits. This word came up a lot in this, in this exchange about Julie and about her life and her story. What are habits? Well, they're unconscious responses. They're actions or responses that do not require conscious thought. At one time, they most certainly had been given thought. They were well-reasoned through for good or for bad. And after they were thought up, they were then practiced. They were practiced. The actions, the thoughts, those ways were repeated. They were repeated. They were twisted. They were driven in. And a level of satisfaction was gained. And a level of proficiency was gained. This is a habit. I've likened habits to a threaded screw. I just had to hang that mirror there this last week and I put one screw in the back and I had to pull out some mortar to get that thing to go in there. And the, the screw that I had to use was a pretty long one. You can imagine all the threads on that. 
Habits are like screws. The, the, the thoughts and the desires and the motivations of a habit are like the threads on a screw. The further it can go in, the more thought and the more intentionality, the more desire. The head of the screw is the practice, the twisting and twisting to get it in. And once you twist that practice in far enough, do you have to think about it anymore? Or is it like cruise control? It just happens, right? It's like cruise control at that point. Once twisted in all the way, the habit is set, and it will not come out of the wall of your thick head without force. (laughs) My thick head. It will not come out of us without force. But you can also just go in and cut the head off, can't you? You can disavow all the thinking that led to that habit and just dump the thing entirely, can't you? But can you also go in and unpractice and unscrew and twist that habit out and get it out of the wall and put something different in there? Isn't that what we can do as well? Habits are like these screws that are just twisted in us all over the place. You've got to remember also that habits are indifferent toward their creation and they're neither good or bad in and of themselves. They work for both good, for our good, and at the same time, they work for our pain and for our shame, as you saw in the story. Your habits will work for your pain and shame as well. But remember this. Habits are a blessing from the Lord. We cannot avoid habitual living because God made us to live habitually. How miserable would it be if every day you had to relearn how to make toast or if you had to relearn how to drive a car? I mean, these things we just do instinctively, right? But if you're going to change the process of making toast or if you're going to change a habit about the way that you drive your car, you actually have to slow down your life enough to look at it and as you approach it to walk up to it and say no I'm not going to get in the car with my right foot first that that caused sin for me yesterday I need to get in with my my left foot you have to slow the process down which which foot did you put into your pants this morning which foot got its shoe first this morning do you, do you, do you identify can you slow down and think about what are your patterns what are your habits There are the good ones. You don't need to change those. But that same process of evaluating and examining with the mirror of God's word being shined is what has to happen for habits to be popped off. That's how you can change habits. This is hard work, but it's the work of the counselor and the counselee. The unconscious must become conscious again. Actions, words, heart motivations, they get under the microscope. They get put under the microscope. It's a journaling. It's a a journaling process. You you journal something to me. Journal what happened, and then I'll tell you how we can go pop off habits and patterns. Show me what happened. Take me through. Think about the process before you do it. It's delicate and intensive work. Habits are like screws, and the, the threads are like our thoughts and our motives, and the head of the screw is the practice, the twisting in. So in order to undo habits, you need to unscrew the habit. You need to unpractice the practice. Those things that you practiced so well to create the habits, you've got to, you've got to back them out. At the same time, all the reasoning and thoughts and motives must get a thorough review. And if we had distorted views or bad theology, that gets dumped. And we add on to us right thinking and right behaving. The intensity and the duration of these activities will determine the success that you have. It will determine the success that you have. Surely, it involves self-discipline. As the Bible calls it, self-control, patience, even long-suffering and diligence is required. Removal of habits requires mind renewal. 
The removal of ungodly thoughts and replacing with truth. And, and removal of habits requires this first and foremost. And I hope you understand this. Please don't ever miss this in anything that I say to you. It requires the gospel of Jesus Christ. It must have the gospel. It must be attended by the gospel because, again, you will go from doing this silly, foolish thing over here, overeating, you will do this, and then you will shift gears to playing pickleball too many days a week. You'll do, you'll do this, and then, you'll do, and then you'll shift from here, and you'll go to surfing. And then you'll leave surfing, and you'll go to running. And then you'll leave running, and you'll go to weightlifting. And you will never find Jesus Christ because he's right there. But you never wanted him. You wanted all the other activities between all the other excuses. You wanted all of those things more than you wanted Christ. That's what we have to have our counselors, our counselees see, and that's what we have to see. You've got to be able to identify, did I move from my habit, my pattern, and focus on Jesus Christ alone? That's where we need to head. The Christian life is continual change, and I tell you this, all change is hard. All change is hard. And every change, and every change God requires, every change God requires is possible. It is possible. Until we attain to the mature man, until we attain to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, right there in Ephesians 4.13, that's where we're supposed to go with this because the permanent goal is godliness to the glory of God and no habit has ever held back the Holy Spirit. Change must happen. And how can you set the habits? Well, you set them the same way that you remove them. You come up with the reasoning for what your habit's going to be, and then you, what do you need to do? You come up with the reasoning, the threads on the screw, and then what do you do? It's the reasoning and then the, the twisting, the, the practice, right? The twisting. You twist it in. You practice it, and you practice it. Meditation, right? Memorizing God's word and tucking that into our head. It takes practice. It's a good idea. I want to do it. It'll honor the Lord. Yes, those are all great reasons. Now practice it. Twist that thing in there and make it stick. You know this. Paul says in Romans 5.3, we also exult in our tribulations knowing that tribulations bring about perseverance. And perseverance, proven character. And proven character, hope. What do our counselees need more than anything else? What do we need in our lives more than anything else? Hope. It's right there. It's right there. All of these things go together. Now, questions for us would be, are you going to act against your feelings when the going gets tough? Are you going to act against your feelings when the going gets tough? I hope you say yes to that. Another question would be, are you going to be a person who is commandment-oriented or a person who is feelings-oriented? Commandment-oriented or feelings-oriented? Which kind of person are you going to be? Those ideas are on the back of your sheet tonight. Can you turn that over and you see that right there? There's, there's the person who's feelings-oriented, and there's the person who's essentially commandment-oriented, principle-driven, biblical, principle-driven, principle-oriented, commandment-oriented. If you choose at the point of decision to honor God for his glory, you will find success, you will find joy, you will find hope, and God will get the honor he deserves. If you choose, though, at the point of decision to honor yourself, it comes with a world of pain. We saw that in our counseling tonight, didn't we? Isn't that what happened in July, or Julie's life? It sure is. Let's make sure that that doesn't happen in ours. But on the contrary, we could live lives just like the man who passed away just a couple weeks ago, who was honored in his burial and his funeral because of the stalwart and the bulwark that he was for Christianity, R.C. Sproul. There are men of faith. There are women of faith. 
We do honor those who walk this road and do it well. Let's all be one of those. Pray with me. Father God, we're so thankful for this time, this opportunity to share your word, to see from Ephesians the call for us to put off the old man, to be renewed in our mind, and to put on the new self made after your righteousness. Lord, this process is yours. You own it because ultimately, Lord, you are the one who came into us and grabbed hold of our hearts when we were yet your enemies. Lord, we thank you for what you've done. We thank you for your plan. and We recognize it and we want to honor it. Help us, Lord. Help us through the power of your spirit to break the patterns and habits that pull us down and away from you and keep you from getting the glory you deserve from us. Let us be a congregation who will put on Christ-likeness for the benefit of your kingdom, for the glory of your name, for the increased fellowship here, and for the good of each believer. Let these things happen. In the name of our Savior, Christ Jesus, amen.